Allison. And I'm Stacy. And you are listening to the Best Together podcast. Brought to you by Blind Early Services Tennessee. And made possible by contributions from listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Hi, everyone. This is Allison and Stacy with the Best Together podcast, and we are really excited about our guest today. Her name is Jamie Kadish, and she is a Southern California native. She's from Santa Monica, where I used to live, and she spent her youth playing a variety of team sports. She began her journey in movement training, attending Los Angeles County High School for the Arts. She studied classical modern dance, ballet, jazz, and improv techniques. She then went on to pursue her higher education degree in dance performance, completing a bachelor's in fine arts degree at California State in Long Beach. Um, She also expanded her education later on, earning an associate of arts degree in early childhood education, which led her to working with preschool children and really uh, solidified her passion for movement and movement education for all ages. And she happens to have what's called retinitis pigmentosa, which is a visual impairment. She was diagnosed with RP at the age of 21, which is a visual impairment that causes progressive vision loss. And finally, she is the founder of a new nonprofit called Insight Outreach, and their mission is to offer movement literacy for young children with blindness or visual impairments. And she does that through consulting with parents and providers like us here at Best. She's Uh, consulted with some of our team. So we are really excited to have Jamie here today to talk about all things movement um, and all things about movement specifically for children who don't have vision or have low vision. So thanks for being here with us today, Jamie. Thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for your podcast. It's really been a resource for me as I continue to navigate my own journey. So thank you for bringing me on. Well, we will kick it off where we usually start, which is just the beginning. Tell us about your early life and your study and interest of dance and movement and how that all began. Yeah. So I was born in Santa Monica and Before I could walk, my mom told me that I was dancing and I've always been a mover. It's been a part of my personality that I'm very active and love to dance and play and run. And so my mom put me in every sport and put me in dance. And at the time, it was a little bit too pink, a little bit too tight with the leotard and the hair. (laughs) And I needed to let it go and just be a ball player. So I stopped dancing in my younger years and really focused on softball. And when I got into middle school, there came a crossroads where it was time to decide whether I was going to go to Santa Monica High School or if I was going to go to a performing arts high school because I had done a couple of things with dance and had a very deep love for it. And my mom and my counselor at my middle school at the time really encouraged me to audition for LA County High School for the Arts, which I did and got in. And that began the more focused and intentional practice of dance. And I was exposed to so many legendary teachers and was really given an opportunity to see how dance could be now this vehicle that I lived life through. So after that, I went to New York and I was dancing in New York for a little bit. And that was when a lot of um, movement things were coming up and different uh, just discrepancies within the classroom with what the teacher was saying I was doing and what I felt I was doing through movement. And New York needed to shift. So I came back to L.A. and transferred to Cal State Long Beach, where the setup there was more academic. And I got to be exposed to things like anatomy and Pilates and more of the kinesiology side of movement and dance. And it was there, again, where I started having discrepancies with what I felt I was putting out and what teachers were telling me I was doing. And that was where I really started to find that I was having some visual differences. And Jamie, um, with your vision diagnosis of RP, um, we're aware that that's not something that just happens suddenly. That's um, a progressive uh, 
vision loss diagnosis. Um, so it sounds like it was around that time, age of 21, when um, you and maybe medical professionals were able to tease out what that what was causing your your vision differences. But um, but I'm curious what uh, what was your early childhood like and um, your time in high school, uh, you know, with maybe some differences in vision, but not really knowing what the cause was. Yeah, so I've always been low vision. I've been wearing glasses since kindergarten. And as I was going through my academic career, there were many things that came up like dyslexia, issues with reading comprehension. And I had a couple of IEP meetings, individual education plan meetings, and it kept coming up that, you know, other areas in my education were really good. I had family support that I would be okay. I didn't need an IEP plan and that we were going to just move on. And as a child, there were things that came up in my eye checks. And unfortunately, at the time, I was with a service provider who chalked it up to like, oh, it's a facial grow out of it. So there was never a digging deeper into what was happening. And okay. as a child, I feel like there were many times where I was feeling very misunderstood. Like I was feeling one thing was happening. The outside world was reflecting something very different. Mm -hmm. And in college, that was when I first really started to feel that, uh, what's the word, amplify to a point where it came to a head and it gave me the environment or it gave me the impetus to dig deeper on my own. So in college, I was commuting from Venice to Long Beach, which is about a 30 mile drive. And it was at night when I was driving home that I started to realize that I wasn't able to see the lines in the road or to see the freeway entrances or exits clearly. And at the time I thought, oh, I'm driving an old car. Maybe it's the lights on the car. You think everything else besides you're losing your eyesight. And I had a moment with my dad where we were facing each other in a hallway and I dropped something on the floor and I couldn't find it. And it was literally right in front of me. And my dad was so concerned in that moment that he again, gave me the experience of you need to figure out what's happening. So we went down the rabbit hole of getting checked out to figure out what else could be happening, why I wasn't seeing the lines in the road or the things right in front of my face. Um, and at the time, unfortunately, I was going through, well, unfortunately, and also fortunately, I was going through a lot of turmoil with the dance department at Cal State Long Beach, because I wasn't able to meet their expectations. And because there was no reason for why it was labeled as a work ethic issue or a behavior issue or an attitude issue versus something else may be going on. So I went through the route of going to an optometrist. He was concerned because he couldn't correct my vision to 2020. So he sent me to some specialists. And I had that moment where a specialist said to me, I don't know what's happening. However, what I think is happening is this thing called retinitis pigmentosa. It's a degenerative genetic mutation of the eye cells. And basically you're losing the cones and the rods in the eye that take in light and create image at a rapid pace. So it's, it's going blind and there's no way they can tell you how it's going to progress when it's going to progress. In my experience, I'm losing my central vision quicker than my peripheral. So I still have a lot of strong peripheral vision and it was this moment of really being handed over a new identity and a new life experience. And at the time, it was really hard to want to share that with anyone around me, especially in my dance department and in my college, because I was being labeled with all of these really un uncomfortable things like behavioral issues and learning things and to tell them what was happening now just didn't feel safe. So mm. I really just survived my last semester of college because I was diagnosed literally the last semester before I was going to graduate. 
and put my head down and just made it through that wow. time. Yeah. I hear was- that a lot about the behavior issues and the mislabeling of things that are going on. And it just frustrates me so much on behalf of the people living that and their parents for younger children. But right. I'm wondering, I, you know, how did that feel to finally have like a reason though, that you could point to and say, kind of, I told you so there's been something else deeper going on here and you all have completely misjudged the situation and me. And I mean, I'm sure too, for your parents, that must've been an interesting feeling to think, oh, wow, you know, we didn't find this answer sooner. And you kind of had to pursue it yourself as an adult at that time. Yeah. It's why I say it was a fortunate and also unfortunate situation because fortunately it gave me the answer as to why I felt like I was living in one reality and the outside world was seeing something completely different. Mm -hmm. So it gave me an answer as to why. It also gave me what I needed now as an educator to know how the teachers that were labeling me versus being curious were really failing me as educators. And it really taught me this lesson and intention that I move from now as an educator, that when something is a discrepancy in the classroom, instead of labeling it and putting it in a box over to the side, I want to be curious about it. And the last thing I want to tell a student is that you're not going to do X, Y, and Z, because it turned out for me that a lot of teachers would tell me like, you're never going to be a dancer. You're not going to be a professional. You need a shift. You need to do something different. And it really informed me of my role as an educator, as a facilitator, that that's the last thing that we should be doing. And we should actually be curious about what's happening and why. And so it's given me an opportunity to forgive myself for things that have happened in my education, in my dance training, that I felt a lot of shame or guilt about. And it's given me also an opportunity to understand a deeper, a deeper um, purpose behind what I do and why. I love hearing about um, just your outlook on on all of that, Jamie. The fact that um, you are taking something that is is a traumatic diagnosis, um, and and you are seeing the positives in it and applying it in a way that, um, you know, applying your experience to, uh, to people you're working with and, and you're right, like not judging them for, for what you're seeing and and digging deeper instead. But, um, I am, I'm fascinated by the fact that you were finishing your college career. You had pursued something you're incredibly passionate about, and then you get a life-changing diagnosis at a time when, you know, most of us are just starting to figure stuff out and, um, you know, what, what our future is going to hold and what's my profession going to be. And then you had something completely different to, to grapple with. Um, so yeah, back to that time. Um, what did you do with that information then? Did it, did it make you change course on what you had studied or did it give you even more passion for, for movement and what you had, um, yeah, really poured yourself into up until that point. Yeah, so it really changed everything. At the time, it really did feel, for lack of a better term, like a death sentence. It felt like this life that I had been dreaming into and these ideas I had for what my dance career was going to be were gone, and they weren't a choice that I made to be gone. It was taken away from me. And unfortunately, my experience with the dance world is it's not very accessible. It's not very accommodating. There's a lot of competition. And the reality is, if you can't do it, there's 10 other dancers behind you that are waiting for the opportunity. So I felt like the dance world was not going to be the place for me anymore. And to be honest, because of how hard it was for me to see on stage performing wasn't giving me the same type of satisfaction either. So again, being able to pivot at Long Beach into a more 
science-based look at movement versus the performance gave me a new place to pour into. And I moved into becoming a Pilates instructor and personal trainer. I did that at Long Beach. We were really lucky to have a beautiful dance science department and an amazing teacher who had our anatomy, our dance Pilates. And I was able to do my Pilates certification through her. And that gave me now a new purpose with movement. I was still in a place with my diagnosis of hiding. I didn't tell people. And at the time I was still, uh, when I was diagnosed, I was still able to read. I was still, still able to write. I was still able to drive. So it felt like this is not something other people need to know. And to be honest, I didn't really want to acknowledge it. I wanted to repress it, suppress it as much as possible. And it, wasn't until a couple years later, when I was working at a gym, that things started to come up again, where people were perceiving me one way when I felt I was doing something different. And so it came to the standstill of I can't hide anymore, because what I'm not telling people is allowing people to make up all these stories about who I am. And it's not true. And I want to feel understood. And I want to feel seen in this space. So I have to give people the information that allows them to understand who is in front of them. So it really, and it is still a process. It's a journey. I honestly don't feel like I'll ever be done necessarily grieving the trauma or working through things that come up that feel in the moment overwhelming because of what is perceived as a loss. I have lived so much of my life with functional sight and I still have a lot of functional sight. And also I'm very much in this moment of losing certain functions, like the ability to drive. I haven't driven in six years now or reading or writing on paper. And so it's this really interesting nuance of continuing to shift into a new version of myself as my eyesight continues to shift. And it's interesting because I honestly see it as my biggest teacher. And so at that time, like you said, when we're figuring out who we are, my diagnosis and having to live with now this new version of who I am was one of the biggest catalyst for me to figure out who I really am and what I'm here to do. We hear this a lot on this podcast, this uh, juxtaposition between the sighted world and the not sighted world and kind of straddling the two identities and how difficult that is. And what I hope listeners take away from that is that it's okay to kind of live in both, but from what I'm hearing from you and what we've heard from other people with the lived experience is embracing that in the end is, is more helpful to the, the actual processing of it than, than suppressing it and trying to just cling to the sighted world only. Um, so I just, you know, I, I like to spread that message because I, I see it in, you know, when my student teaching and high school aged kids or middle school aged kids who are just, so afraid to let that side be seen and they want to fit in with their peers. And I, I feel so just, I don't know. I just sympathize with them and hope that they can get there in the embracing of it, because I just think it will help with the overall process and the mental health of it all. But again, I have never been there, so I don't know what that's like myself. And for me, my son is only in the blind world. So he's never had to straddle. I know Stacy's son, you know, has a footing in each and it can be difficult. So I just love that you highlight that and that you talk so openly about the real feelings behind all of that and and that it is a process and it is grieving. It really, really is. Yeah. And it's, I think, a surrender into knowing that there's never a destination, that it's going to continue to be a process. And I will say for those who are still struggling to just embrace that part of them that they don't want to share. 
embracing all of who you are allows you to just be even more of who you are and allows other mm -hmm. people to really connect. And the more that I have shared with my social circle and the people that I spend my time with, what's going on and what I do see and what I don't see, it's honestly allowed them to develop a deeper sense of love for who I am. And the thing that I've been reflected more often lately is that I bring to them a new perspective. I bring to them new information, things they've never heard about. And so me embracing my difference and having the courage to share that has also allowed other people to expand their perspective. And then it gives them this joy to be my friend. I'm not just... Mm -hmm. You know, a big thing for me was feeling like because I have to ask for help for things or because I don't drive, I'm becoming a burden on the people that I spend time with and realizing that I'm actually expanding their life. I'm actually expanding their mindset and their perspectives and their resiliency through me being open and being present and it's not easy it's a challenge every single day and it's really been the thing that's taught me what it means to be accountable to your energy and accountable to the intention you have moving through the day yes thank you jamie so much for your candidness and honesty and um just being so open about your story and those early experiences I know that's that can't be easy to share um, but yes absolutely the place you're at now um, you said like you say it's continually a process of acceptance and um, uh, you know new struggles will come up and grief comes up at different times but um, you know I'm we are both so grateful for the person you are and the fact that you you have accepted that because you are now giving your gifts to I know our organization and we'll we'll hit on this later in the podcast, which is how you're using your talents um, to to serve people with similar experiences and, and different. But um, I before think we touch be, on that, sorry oh, to interrupt you, Stacey. No, go for I it. think you could be you could do a TED talk. You right. could be a peer mentor, a public speaker. Yes. A therapist. I mean, there's so much, and there's so much of a need for people behind you in this process to know that it's going to get better or how it can get better by embracing those, you know, that energy and the, yeah. the things that you talk about that I'm just sitting here thinking of all the career iterations that you could go through. With yeah. that, with right. That. Yes. Because I feel like, you know, the whole part of me embracing what I'm going through. And, and you said something earlier, Allison, of like, I, I've never gone through what you're going through. I don't understand it. But we all understand the essence of having to go through challenge and having to be resilient. And especially like we're all going to get older. Our physical differences are going to shift and our abilities are going to shift. And the more that we embrace that and understand that the more again like we can have compassion for other people because we experience the essence of that through different ways and again me embracing what i'm going through i have shared a lot on social media about certain aspects and it's given other people permission to share things that they're going through that on paper don't look like they relate at all but it's the essence of the human experience that is challenging and this need to find community and find curiosity and creativity to really pivot towards resiliency. Yes, absolutely. And, and people like yourself are just so approachable and it's so refreshing because it's, it's clear to people that you don't have some barrier up, you know, and, um, and being with someone that accepts themselves for who they are and their own challenges. It just, like you say, gives other people permission to, to do the same for themselves. And yeah. we all need to be more gentle with ourselves. Um, yeah. And yes. Um, I want to go back, Jamie, to you talked um, about uh, that time when you hadn't necessarily shared with everyone um, the visual diagnosis and the vision you were losing. But um, you said, you mentioned that 
people would maybe notice something through your movement that that stood out somehow. Um, I'm intrigued to have you go more into that because, um, you know, in in having a son with blindness and then are working with children with blindness, um, as as an observer, there can be, you know, so, some more obvious differences in the way someone moves who doesn't have sight. Um, you know, they're moving, they're using their other senses differently or, you know, maybe getting that um, vestibular sense through some rocking or some other mechanisms that people really just don't understand. Um, so I'd love for you to, to speak a little bit more about what, what you were experiencing at, at that time, what people were observing. So as a dancer, I've always had issues with balance and it's kind of this idea of the chicken or the egg, like who knows what came first, whether my movement was set up as a young baby because of my low vision that made me unstable or, you know, is it something else later on in life? I'm not sure. I think honestly, from the beginning, my my balance, my system of balance was being challenged by my low vision. And so I was always having issues with balance in class. I was missing details in choreography. And it was just like the irony of life that the semester I was diagnosed, I was in a piece uh, that was set by a, a choreographer from San Francisco who I had worked with for many years before during summer intensives. It was a very gestural piece, like holding up different finger symbols in front of you. So it was right in my central vision and I was missing all of these hand details. So the choreographer I was working with, the person who was helping set the piece was just like, she's lazy. She's missing details. She doesn't care. Like, let's put her in the back. So then that got even worse for me because I was missing even more information being in the back of the classroom. Oh, and so frustrating. Was, let's just put her in the second cast so she doesn't get to perform as much. So they just kept demoting me through the process. And that was when it was really apparent to me in the dance world that what I thought I was doing by working hard and focusing on the details wasn't translating to my performance and to what other people were observing. So when I left the dance world and went into working in a gym setting, it started to happen where I would be walking in the gym and walking past clients and not saying hi to them, not acknowledging them. And they were taking it personally. Like I was mad at them or I was having a bad day or whatever they were making up as to why I wasn't acknowledging them as I was walking by. Another big thing in the gym culture was giving fist bumps and, you know, putting a fist or a hand in my central vision. Most of the times I don't see it. I really, it's something I describe with my sight in this moment is it's very much like seeing optical illusions. I see the outlines of people's faces. I'm not seeing their eyes, their nose, their mouth. So I, I can see some things and because I can use my other senses, like my hearing to direct my gaze to where I'm supposed to focus, who's talking to me, people see me as someone who sees like they do. And so without giving them this background, when they would see these little nuances of me walking by them or me missing a handshake or, you know, them writing me a note that I, I kind of just like, look down and like, oh, okay, thank you and walk away or they want to show me, you know, we live in a culture that's so visually um, mesmerized at the moment with social media and memes and all of these things. And people would be like, oh, look at this picture, look at this thing. And I'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, cool. But they would be like, she's not really, she doesn't care. You know, it just came off as I didn't care. I wasn't present. So okay. it was interesting because I, again, I realized like, people will make up all stories that they can to try and figure out why you are not presenting a certain way. Yes. And that was, I, I realized like, I got to give people information because I want to control my narrative. I don't want other people saying who I am or why I want to be able to be the one who sets that, you know? Okay. Yes. That makes a lot of sense. So it wasn't necessarily um, that you were, 
portraying like any type of stemming behavior, like eye reference, like with rocking or that you would see in some young children. It was, it was those social cues and, um, right. Things that, that with sight, we, we rely on so much as far as, um, body cues or, uh, body, you know, communication through, through bodily nonverbal communication. That's what I'm looking for. Um, (laughs) and, and yeah, it makes sense. You were, you were missing out on a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. So you said a word a little while ago, and I'm probably going to mispronounce it, but kinesiology? Yes, Did I get kinesiology. It? Okay. Yeah. Tell us what that is and why it's important, and um, we'll you know, go into especially how it can be important with, with younger children. Yeah. So kinesiology is the study of movement, and it looks at a bunch of different uh, vantage points into movement and the study of it. And I was really lucky again when I left the school I was going to in New York and transferred to Cal State Long Beach. They had a huge dance science department and it was a huge focus for them. They have a really big kinesiology department at Cal State Long Beach. And it gave me the more functional in my perspective, more functional understanding of how we move and and what creates that and where it comes from. And this process, really looking at the beginning of life when we're babies to when we're older, an understanding of how we shift and change through movement. At the time and still now, a lot of kinesiology is looking at the abled body There isn't a lot of, in the mainstream education, my experience has been that there's not a lot of information of what does this study look like when you look at a baby who's born without sight, which is where my curiosity now is coming from, especially seeing how losing eyesight has really shifted things for me, such as posture and the overall feeling I have in my body, being someone who is so connected to movement and having so much training in what is perceived as the the right or wrong way to do something, it gave me a measurement to be able to understand, okay, so this is what is meant to happen and I'm somewhere over here. Why is that happening? So for me, I was having a lot of issues again in my dance training with balance. At the time, I thought it was because I was so hypermobile. I have so much flexibility in my body. I really have to work on strength. And I had teachers over and over throughout my long training career. You have to get stronger. You have to do more. You have to get stronger. And what was really happening was because my eyesight was shifting, eyesight and hearing work together to create balance. And so I was losing that system of eyesight supporting my balance. And it... It is, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. It is interesting to see with the study of kinesiology where we can expand to supporting people who are born with a different life experience from the beginning. So tell me, you you said, um, or the mission of your, your new nonprofit is movement literacy. So yeah. tell me, Tell a little bit more about that. And if, if someone who's blind or visually impaired or um, especially a young child is not literate in movement, so to speak, how do we get there? What do you do with them? What does that look like? Yeah. So for me, movement literacy means giving children the information that they would learn about movement through sight in different ways, because we learn so much through our sight and movement really is the foundation for so much cognitive development. Knowing that I want to figure out how to support babies who are born with visual impairments and blindness in meeting those same milestones so that they're able to continue to live fully. And movement literacy is looking at body awareness. So teaching children what the body is called, teaching children directionality of space, teaching children posture. A lot of children who are born with visual impairments or blindness will fix their head down, which is changing 
your directionality and it's changing your your posture. And even if we don't see through our eyes, our skull is still meant to sit on our on, on our spine. We're not meant to have our head facing down. And that can start to cause a lot of issues through the body. So for me, movement literacy means giving children the information that they would get through sight um, in the same way just through different modalities. So with the little ones, there's a lot of what I used in my preschool classroom with singing and dancing and exploration with storytelling and embodying that. And that's another part of movement literacy is nonverbal communication, uh, something that I'm learning as I am now more uh, observant or more I guess, a, a participant in the community of the spectrum of blindness and being exposed to more people on that spectrum, seeing how body language, nonverbal communication, conversational directionality, directionality. So for a lot of people who have visual impairments, who are born that way, they're, they're not aware of the sighted world that looks at you when you talk to them. If I can hear you, why do I have to look at you? So teaching these skills and tools to help them understand how the sighted world operates through movement differently so that they then can have better social connections in that space. I love it. I'm as a selfish parent, I need you to come work with my son. I, so <laughs> I mean, he holds his head down. Um, and I try to remind him, you know, head up. Head, well, I, we say head middle, because when I say head mm -hmm. up for him, he throws yeah. his head all the way up because yeah. to him, he's never seen what head up means. So um, I love the idea of incorporating songs and dance and making it fun because, you know, typical therapy for that is just kind of a constant reminder me putting my hand under his chin and lifting his head up and saying here do this but to make it you know more purposeful and fun for kids is so important so I just had to jump in and say I love what you're doing and come to my house <laughs> yes, we'll, we'll be there soon I yeah and how did you uh begin focusing on the littles because it sounds like with uh, kinesiology. Kinesiology. <laughs> Thank somebody you. Was gonna do it. It's so. Allison hard. practiced it ahead of time, and I should have practiced too. <laughs> um, that that really spans all ages. Um, yeah. Do you still work with adults through movement? Um, do you particularly focus on children, or kind of where did that passion come from? Yeah. So I do still work with the whole spectrum of life. And I teach Pilates, I teach personal training and different modalities of movement to help people move better, feel better in their body. It was really amazing. Actually, the first time I worked with one of your early interventionists, I started my morning by teaching a group fitness Pilates class. And I had a student in that class that's 85 years old. And then I got to come shift into working with uh, Leanne, one of your earlier interventionists with a one and a half year old baby who was born visually impaired. So I really do get to still see the whole spectrum. I shifted into working with early childhood when I was a preschool teacher, because I continued to see the same movement. I, I don't want to call it. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of my words, uh, intentionally. I was seeing the same issues, I guess, with movement in my adults over and over and over again. And so I was like, okay, where is this stemming from? It's stemming from a lack of knowledge that they didn't get as children in how your body is meant to move, literally designed to move. So that's when I first wanted to shift into working with children in movement. And I started working at a center called Village Arts Center in the Palisades. And I was extremely lucky to have mentors in that space that were 
using movement and music in a therapeutic space and really intentionally. And it taught me like, oh, movement is not just about getting these children to play and move. Like this is a vehicle that we can talk about social emotional skills through. And so that was what really led me into wanting to work with the littles. I went back for my um, early childhood education AA and then went into the preschool classroom. And it's interesting for me because, again, at the time, I was still embracing my new identity. The preschool was my first job where I stated in my interview that I have a visual impairment, that I would need accommodations if I were to join this learning community. And it really was the preschool environment being with these littles and seeing how they embraced my difference as a teacher in the classroom, not as a less than as a thing that was exciting and new and it empowered them because I needed to ask them for help and they got to show up. And it was a really beautiful experience for me to see like, oh, this is the beginning for all of us. So in the classroom, I had also support from an occupational therapist who was working at our school once a week, observing our classroom, supporting us with students who we thought were having some challenges. And she really reached out to support me as a teacher because she is so focused on vision and is so passionate about it. Because going back to the point, there are so many kids misdiagnosed with different learning disabilities or behavioral disorders who are really having visual processing differences. So again, because of that happening in that space, it refocused me of like, oh, like this piece of movement and vision is so crucial in this population zero to five. And no one's really looking at it. No one's focusing on it yet. And then as I continue to go through my process of my posture shifting and my balance being off, realizing these things were always an issue for me. They started when I was younger. They're just now at a place that it's so apparent that I can't like accommodate or adapt as easily as I did when I was a child. So again, it kept drawing me back to like the beginning to the beginning. And the more that I embraced my new identity and entered the world of visual impairments and blindness and meeting people who had different stories with vision and started when they were younger, I was realizing, wow, there are a lot of people who are feeling disenfranchised from their bodies and from movement because there haven't been people around them that have been curious about how do we accommodate so that this person still explores all of this range of motion and expression in their body, even though they're not learning it through sight. So seeing that and seeing how I'm going through my own journey and what's happening with my movement and how much movement has now become my anchor in life. Like I moved from this place of moving for performance and for a career into moving because it's the thing that keeps me regulated. It's the thing that keeps me faithful that I can continue to expand and to move and to grow, even though my body physically is changing and wanting to figure out how that information becomes more universal for children who are born with visual differences, because it is for me, in my perspective, the beginning to all other development. Like we are nonverbal communicators before we have words. We are movers always from the very beginning. So it's really inspired me. And again, this challenge has really empowered me to step up and use my passion of movement and the gift that I feel I was given in a way that I never thought never in a million years thought that this is what I would be doing with all of those years of my dance training. And it's really become, it's, it's funny. It's, um, joyful. I don't know what the right word to describe it is. It, it brings me a lot of satisfaction to think about all of the teachers who told me that I would never be a dancer. I'm like, thank you for telling me that. Cause you're right. I didn't belong in that little box of being a dancer. Like I am now a movement specialist that can consult so many different people in so many different areas of life through this gift of movement. And I love that you're focusing on this community because 
It really is so important. I mean, we see it all the time with children who have little to no vision that they just will not move through space to explore. And if we don't encourage that exploration and that movement, their world stays so small. And to to learn and to grow and to explore the world and, and bring it to a child who doesn't have sight, it requires moving through space and getting out there. And um, I think too, of my son, again, you know, when I used to say to him, run, he would just move in place, like kind of shuffle his feet real quick, because he didn't know what that meant to physically like propel his body forward through space to actually know what running was. And that had to be a purposeful, intentional thing that I taught him what that meant. Um, And you just take that for granted when you have sight and you see what running is, you know, right in front of you. So I love that you're focusing on this community. Like I said, it's just so crucial um, for development and everything, really. Jamie, as a um, movement specialist, I would love for you to speak for a minute to um, listeners that maybe O&M instructors or PTs or, um, you know, other persons in the field familiar with those um, specialties. Um, speak to how, how movement specialists are different from, um, from those therapists. Is it, they might hear what you're doing and think, oh, well, this is complete overlap or we already have this covered. Um, but yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So this is really coming from my lived experience of how my relationship with the mirror has shifted now that I can't see what's in it. And as a dancer, I was really trained to look at the mirror to understand where my body was in space. And now I'm really focused as a mover myself and as someone who teaches movement, how to get a felt sense for where your body is in space and really come from this inside out approach versus the outside letting me know what's happening internally. So as a movement specialist, I am doing my best to pull from multiple vantage points. And I am very grateful and fortunate that on my board with Inside Outreach, I have an amazing O&M instructor named Brian Bushway, who uses echolocation to support his students. I have an occupational therapist, Taryn Erickson, who is very focused on vision and very creative. And she was someone who taught me that when you see a behavior in the classroom versus labeling it, it's an opportunity for us to create and get curious on how we can support this child having a different experience within the classroom. And then I also have a marriage family therapist, Ben Hall, who is an amazing musician and uses music and movement to help support people through social and emotional challenges. So my idea with being a movement specialist is that we really are using multiple modalities of movement to help people come back to feeling regulated and come back to feeling home and safe in their bodies. So tell us, you know, I don't want to end our podcast without really honing in on your nonprofit and it's called Insight Outreach. And so for our listeners, tell us a little bit more about what I know we've talked through the mission and all of that, but what are the the services? It sounds like, and I know from you working with our providers that you work with other providers, that you work with parents um, directly with children. Is it only in person? Is this something that can be done virtually? Do you have to have your hands on, you know, the child to help them or the adult as you work with? Um, So tell us just a little bit more about the actual services of Insight Outreach. I'd love to. So this is really a beginning moment for me with this offering, and it's still coming in what I am able to do and be of service to. So I'm starting with the intention of being able to offer movement resources to children, to their families, and to their service providers. And my my goal and my hope is that I'm able to give people more tools to integrate more movement in their child's life or into their 
student's life. At the moment, I'm able to do things in person and also virtually, which I just experienced being able to consult an early interventionist in their session. And they were describing to me what, what was happening and I was able to jump in and support with movement. So it's something that at this moment is... I don't feel like there's necessarily limits, like everything that comes up as far as, can you do this? Can you do that? I'm like, let's try, let's, let's see what it's, what is possible. So my goal is that no matter where I am, I'm able to be of service and consult. So that can look like over the phone that can look like, um, you know, through email correspondence. I would love to also be in person. I'm working hard right now to figure out how to offer community programming, how to also get into centers that already are established or nonprofits that are already established. So I am asking anyone and everyone who wants to and is in need of movement resources to reach out. I'm really available to collaborate and see how I can offer my insight, my perspectives to support others being able to move bigger and yeah so I hope that answers (laughs) it does and how can people reach you if they want to reach out directly yeah so people can reach out to me the best way at the moment is through email my email is teacher.jamie j-a-i-m-e-e at gmail.com you can also find me at teacher underscore jamie on Instagram, where I've started to slowly post some content about my movement offerings. So reach out on those platforms directly. And I am a phone talker. I cannot stand, (laughs) like, I'm so grateful for adaptive technology and voiceover. And also like hearing the same tone, read all of the people's different, it's so much better for me to get on the phone with someone and have voice to voice interaction. So And we should point out that Jamie will be coming to our White Cane Awareness Day and Best Fest on December 10th. So you can meet her in person here in Nashville then. We're very excited. Same. Thank you so much for having me and continuing to open your arms and bring me into your community. It's really been inspiring and so supportive to my creative process. So thank you. Do you know a family or provider in need of resources to support a child with low vision or blindness? Do you know someone with lived experience or professional expertise related to blindness who might be willing to share their story? If so, please reach out to us at blindearlyservices.org. Thank you for listening to the Best Together podcast and for supporting our mission. And please stay in touch. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Blind Early Services. Until next time.